Welcome back to the Marvel Movie Minute, a daily podcast which will explore the films of the Marvel Cinematic Universe one minute at a time. In this our fourth season, we're looking at Kenneth Branagh's 2011 film, Thor. I'm Matthew Fox from the Superhero Ethics Podcast. And I'm Andy Nelson from the Next Real Film Podcast. And today we're talking about Minute 77, which begins with Sif expressing concern about what should be done and ends with a Bifrost kicking into high gear. Joining us the show today, as with every day this week, is Miles Stokes and Elizabeth Alley from the podcast Thor the Lightning and the Storm. Uh, Miles and Elizabeth, um, obviously you guys are huge comic book fans. We'd love to hear a little bit more about that for, from each of you. What got you started in comic books and especially Marvel? Oh, gosh. Um, I was 14. I was on a family trip to Hawaii with my uh, my brother and my parents. Uh, the local corner store ran out of Archie Comics, so my brother brought home some X-Men or back to the condo where we were staying. And I was like, what are these, boy comics? And then by the end of the trip, we were on the plane drawing X-Men and being like, there's a comic shop in our town. We're going to have to read every single uncanny X-Men there, there could ever be. <laughs> So yeah, well, I can understand in Hawaii there's not much to do. So like I'm sure yeah. like comics are. The- <laughs> it was also just post Inferno and the classic X Men reprints right before Dark Phoenix. So I was unwittingly stepping into a whole lot of Jean Grey like Madeline Pryor epicness that has branded me for life. That there's an X Men movie or two that I'm going to review at some point that I think I'm going to want to get your thoughts on. Uh, the the uh, Dark Phoenix. I'm sure you have some thoughts on how that was portrayed <laughs> oh, on film. Uh, Miles, what about yourself? <laughs> Uh, I have been into comics for literally as long as I can remember. One of my first memories was being about four years old and having my dad read me X-Factor number four, where X-Factor fights the Alliance of Evil, who we will soon find is working for Apocalypse. And yeah, I uh, it was just sort of always around. My dad was a big comics fan in his youth and continued to be. And so when he gave me a big long box full of X-Men and Thor comics for Christmas, uh, mostly 80s stuff, I was kind of hooked from there, started buying my own in the 90s, became obsessed with X-Men until the Age of Apocalypse ended, and I quit for a while, came back, now I do an X-Men podcast. So, yeah, that's been uh, that's been flowing through my blood from very early on. Nice, nice. Well, so glad to have you here. We'll have more of your thoughts in just one moment. Do you want to get in on the conversation about everything going on this week with the battle in Puente Antiguo with the Destroyer with like-minded Marvel fans over on Facebook? Well, just join our Facebook group, the Marvel Movie Minute Podcast Executive Lounge. Go to truestory.fm slash Marvel Movie Minute and click on the link for the social of your choice. All right, so... We get here a minute, totally sent on Asgard. Um, what kind of le- leapt out at you from this minute? What'd you notice? Okay, so the main thing I noticed is that Sif says, we know what we have to do. And then Hogan says, let's go get Thor. And her face is like, oh, <laughs> like that's not what she was thinking. And then you see her be like, Thor would do this for us. So it's like, either Sif did not know what they needed to do and she was throwing it out there to see if she could get a consensus or she was firmly believing that they shouldn't go get Thor and then was persuaded Mm. by the group to do so. I mean, maybe she just had a different plan. Everybody's stressed out. Maybe she was like, hey, let's go bowling. Hey, let's get some Froger. Like, it it could have been any number of things. (laughs) And bowling is always a good plan. But and, And Andy actually put in our notes, like, you know, why is it that they're surprised when Hogan says it? I, I had a different read on that, and I, I don't think anyone's wrong. I, I thought that she she did mean let's go get Thor, 
But as you were saying, it might have been that she was therefore ready to convince everyone. And as Hogan, I mean, first of all, the fact that Hogan speaks, which is not a frequent occurrence in this movie. Um, I think these are his fourth and fifth words that he's saying. <laughs> um, my math is terrible, but you know what I mean. But also, I, I, that was my thought, is that that's what the surprise is, is that it's Hogan who's like, we have to go do it. Mm-hmm. I like that read. Yeah, I, I definitely do. I mean, Hogan is, you know, it, it, it's it's a trope. You have the character that is silent most of the time. And so when they do speak, everyone's like, hey, wait. But there's also the fact that, like, He's Vanir. I mean, I don't think that's even addressed until Thor The Dark World, but Hogan the Grim is not an Asgardian. And so I can imagine Sif being very surprised that, oh, this person who isn't even part of our culture immediately wants to lay down his life to save our prince. Maybe she wasn't expecting that. That's definitely an interesting point. And I mean, yeah, because I mean, (laughs) I I just I kind of laugh when I watch this moment, especially in repeat, like I do for for this show. It's like because she's like, we all know what we must do. And and he says, we have to go get Thor. And they all kind of turn to him like, what? Like, and so it's just I don't know, it plays really funny. But I I like that that your your point about that actually is a really interesting angle that like he was not the one that they were expecting to actually say that. Um, But also to your point. He's the guy who, like, when he actually does open his mouth to say something, everybody does kind of turn to listen because it's like, you know, it's so rare for him to actually say something. So it does it it emphasizes the point that much more that this is really the thing that they have to do at this point. Well, and since we have the the luxury of your expertise here, I, I would love to hear a little bit more. La- last time we got to hear a little bit more about who Volstagg is. Tell us more about who Hoken is outside of the, um you know, just the strong, silent guy. Because clearly there's a lot more to him, at least in the comics. Hogan the Grim. Uh, the first thing I always notice about Hogan in the comics is his phenomenal mustache. Uh, unfortunately, we do not get that here. I think that's a loss. Like, I think having... Three warriors with three different sets of facial hair would be a beautiful thing. Some excellent beard representation. I'm I'm an aficionado (laughs) myself, so I fully approve. Uh, But yeah, in the comics, it's similar. He is the strong, silent person, but he's also scary. He's very intimidating in the comics, and a lot is made of that. And, you know, certainly sometimes it's contrast. Like, he'll be the person who does occasionally say something generous or kind, say, to a child. But for the most part, like, He's the bad cop. And so that's definitely different here in the movie. I think in the movie, the main thing we get is quiet, continuing on the theme of the Warriors 3 each being boiled down to, like, a trait. Mm-hmm. Is there something in the comics uh, with Hogan being kind of one of the healers? Because, I mean, we haven't seen it in the film except in the deleted scenes. But when the Warriors 3, when we first see them here in the healing room after they've returned from Jotunheim, Hogan is the one who's picking up the healing stones from the fire and he's kind of rubbing them onto the necrotic flesh on Volstagg's arm to heal him. In this particular scene in the script, as he says, we have to go get Thor, he goes down into the fire and starts getting healing stones to put into his pouch to bring to Midgard, which we see later uh, in a deleted scene that Thor uses to heal Eric. Is that something that is kind of a regular thing with Hogan, or is that something that was just kind of specific for him in the film that they obviously didn't end up using? That's a great question. Elizabeth, do you remember uh, Hogan occupying that role in the comics that we talked about? No, I really, not, not in the Walter Simonson run anyway. The only thing I can think of then is with Hogan being portrayed as as from Vanaheim in the Marvel Cinematic Universe, we've seen Vanaheim portrayed, at least in the comics, as more of kind of a 
hedge magic-y, earthy, naturalistic mystic realm. And so mm-hmm. perhaps that association is the reason we see him doing that in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. I'm not actually sure that he's Vanier at all in the comics. That may just be a cinematic thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I, I looked up the pictures of in the comics based on what you said about facial hair. And yes, his facial hair is epic. It's like the 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 beard and goatee, except the goatee itself is shaved off. So he's just got like the epic sort of mutton chops of a mustache. But also looking at him, I mean, with the fur hat and the helmet and just the facial features, he looks almost Mongol. Mm-hmm. Like he looks like mm-hmm. this is a guy who Genghis Khan would be like, yeah, you're my boy. Interestingly, they cast the guy who played Genghis Khan to play him in the film. Oh, really? Oh, this actor played? <laughs> I had no idea. Yeah, yeah. He played him in the in the movie Mongol. Yeah. Oh, I had no idea. Well, because I was already thinking, like, when I watched the movie, I had no idea about that. And I was kind of curious, like, are they trying to do, like, Asgardian as a multiracial society? And that's why they cast him. Are they trying to be like, we cast an Asian actor for his role because that actually is connected to the Hogan part. Clearly, it's actually more that second. So, yeah, it's interesting. Mm -hmm. What I miss from the Warriors 3 is what I miss from all the Thor movies is their glorious Asgardian headgear. Mm. You know, here we only see Thor with his winged helmet in the beginning of the movie when he's at his most kind of self-absorbed. So it's almost like they're saying to be a down-to-earth dude, you got to not have a hat. But I feel like there there should be some more headgear here. Mm-hmm. I mean, Hogan's helmet, if nothing else, like this would sell like I live in Minnesota and that looks not only <laughs> awesome, but very warm. And I would happily buy a, buy one of those. And it would have been completely appropriate to wear when he went to Jotunheim. Mm-hmm. <laughs> exactly. exactly. He's going to dress in the cold. He's used to the steps and all the, the terrible winter there. You're right. Uh, it just makes them look more foolish for running to Jotunheim without even even Heimdall says you're not dressed warmly enough. Right. <laughs> so, uh, Elizabeth, you and I live in, in Portland, Oregon, and I know that like around here, it's the mark of a true Portlander that even when it rains, you do not have an umbrella. Maybe it's like that it's with true. frequent travelers to Jotunheim. Like they're just going to look like tourists <laughs> if they show up there That's wearing true. parkas. The frost giants aren't wearing any hats. That's true. Maybe it's a sign of weakness. Mm-hmm. Oh, okay. I, I mean. You know, we had three feet. We had a large snowstorm yesterday, and I will see people in bicycle shorts out when I go out later today. So, you know, I, I can understand that, even if I think it's very strange. Um, okay, <laughs> so let's, let's get back to the actual movie we get here. Um, so now Fandrill, his response is, it's treason. And it's like he's the one who's brought this up a lot. Is he kind of, and we can go into more of his character later in the week, but like... It, my sense is just from what we're seeing here, he's all not only is he the Errol Flynn guy, but he's often the one who's like, wait, 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 but we have to we have to do what's right. We have to follow orders. He does seem to have sort of a, a simplistic view of things of like the sort of uh, Dungeons and Dragons lawful half of the alignment. Like, yeah. no, no, no. If the king says we do a thing, therefore the thing is right. Like, I get the impression he's somebody who has benefited throughout his centuries of life by just going with the system. He gets to be very pretty, a good sword fighter, beloved by all. And he never breaks any rules. So his life is just very, very charmed in that regard. So the idea of uh, potentially sacrificing some of that, I can see being a little intimidating for this guy. Yeah. In the comics, he's definitely the the dashing dandy, the, the womanizer and all that. And I can see that they would kind of crystallize that into someone who is kind of looking out for their best interests. And at the surface, you know, going with the most powerful person in the room is in your best interests. Yes, yeah, that's fair. Here's what I think also where I feel like an example of how the characters could have been much better used, what kind of makes me think the characters here are just kind of window dressing. Fandral got stabbed on Jotunheim and, like, came very close to death. And it, there's nothing in what he's doing now. Granted, it's a very small moment, but there's nothing that tells me that his experience in Jotunheim changed him at all. 
And I feel like this is, you know, it's just one more sign where I like, feel like if, if they're really wanting these characters to be important, you that I mean, that's a that's a change. Like maybe, he, you know, they're warriors. They get attacked a lot. But it certainly seemed like what happened to him in Jotunheim was pretty traumatic compared to like the normal scrapes and bruises he might get. A near-death experience could really explain that. Like, hey, we already went against one king and I almost died. So what if we just sit this one out, guys? Right. At least reference that. Something to let me know that that's, that's a new thing for him instead of just what he always is. Well, I mean, it, it almost seems like that next line of Volstag's to hell with treason and suicide. I mean, that almost seems like something more that Fandral would say then, right? I mean, I guess, or you could even lean in the opposite direction to just make it very clear these are gods who have been around so long that individual experiences do not change them and lean into that. But yeah, I agree. I feel like we should acknowledge it in some direction or another, even if that acknowledgement is a very clear lack of acknowledgement. Right. Yeah. It, if there had been some moment earlier when he's being healed and, and he was like, oh, well, yeah, I, I almost died. That means it's Tuesday. You know, something just to let us know, like, how significant an experience is this in his life? Uh, compared to or does it happen all the time? Yeah, right, 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 yeah. And then we get Sif saying, uh, Thor would do the same for us. And here's where, and again, maybe from the comics it makes more sense. I scratched my head at that because what we had just seen was Thor lead them into, not just seen, but the last time we saw them together, Thor leads them into this very stupid battle. They're all like, Thor, we're going to get killed. Let's get out of here. He completely ignores them. He starts fighting. They're getting their butts kicked. He's ignoring them. And it's only until Daddy shows up that he rescues all of them. It, in the movie itself, I don't know if it's hard to kind of separate from the comics, but it, did anyone else have a kind of a disconnect moment when Sif says that? Of like, is it just that like Jotunheim was an exception or they all kind of put him on a, on a pedestal and maybe don't notice that he keeps making these idiotic plans or what, what's happening there? I feel it's more like she feels that Thor would break the rules, mm. you know, like they're saying it's treason and she's more being like he would he would say, you know, F the rules and do what he thinks is right, which is what he did in the beginning. OK, like a WWTD kind of situation. Right. So it's yeah. more the lawyer. Like he might have a really stupid plan to do it, but he would he would at least he would do he would break the rule. That makes more sense. Well, yeah. and I, I think, you know, Sif kind of, you know, she she has a lot of the emotional reactions that we end up seeing in these conversations. Like, you know, she's the one who pleads to Loki as soon as, uh, you know, you know, when when they uh, he reveals, you know, I'm the one who told uh, the guard to go tell Odin to stop them. And she's like, then you must go talk to the all father and tell him to bring Thor back. Like she she's the one who has a lot of these emotional reactions and i can't help but feel there's a there's a connection between her and thor because thor also reacts based on his emotion and we saw i mean that's the whole reason he went to jotunheim he got all you know infuriated that his dad wasn't doing anything and he goes there for you know really bad reasons um but i i feel like Sif recognizes that with him and knows, you know, like, you know, it may not be right, but Thor, you know, there's that draw that Thor is going to have. He will he will come and get us because we are his friends. And even if, you know, he's, you know, doing it for the wrong reasons, he is going to come to help us. And I feel like there is that that you know, some connection between the two of them with that. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. You get mm -hmm. you get the sense of history with the characters, uh, with all of their relationships. I think more each of them to Thor than necessarily with each other. But I'm thinking back to a scene way earlier in the movie, before they go to Jotunheim, when Thor is convincing them, asking each of his friends, like, hey, haven't I done this for you? Haven't I done this for you? Like, we get the sense that these are characters who have kind of been like, a gang of young, by Asgardian standards, rapscallions for, for centuries. They have these experiences. And so 
I guess for me, I kind of felt like the Jotunheim misadventure and how badly it went perhaps was an exception. That's fair. Uh, and perhaps they had done like, you know, a number of missions together in the past and had that loyalty had been shown and, and demonstrated and proven. Yeah, I, I've commented before that I really want Disney Plus and the CW to team up to show us like the Asgardian high school days, you know, of, yes. like, Loki and, and, and Thor and the Warriors 3 and Sif and there's all kind of high school drama and also lot, lots of killing of monsters, you know, like, that'd be great. Let's, let's see how that all formed. I would watch the 1L hell out of that. <laughs> well played, well played. <laughs> All right. And so then we get this uh, kind of wonderful comedy moment of, you know, they're saying, hush, hush, uh, Heimdall might be watching. And of course, right then the doors burst open and a Harrier guard comes in and says, Heimdall demands their presence. And Volstagg is just, we're doomed. Mm -hmm. there, there it is. Yep. <laughs> They're the naughty kids who have been caught out. Mm -hmm. They're like whispering, the teacher's going to hear us. The teacher's going to hear us. And the teacher's like, get up here. Yep. Heimdall, who in this movie uh, makes Hogan's the Grim, looks like it looks like it's spelled with a uh, lowercase g. Yes. Right. Yes. No kidding. No kidding. Here, I'm going to cure it for, for all of you, but especially for, for our, uh, you two who know so much of the comics. I was wondering here, is this a just like Heimdall really wants to see you? Or does like where in the in the the, the rankings of the, the Asgardian whatever it is do these people fall? Does Heimdall actually have the power to say like you know I am your higher up? I get to command that you come and see me now. Uh, in the comics, not really. I mean, he's certainly a very very respected member of the court and a very important member of the court, mm -hmm. but I don't think he's really an authority. Like you know maybe over your random Asgardian soldier or your random Einhariar. Um, but not over, like, the Warriors 3 or Sif. I mean, they're kind of Asgardian celebrities. Right. So I don't think that's a bad change, but it is a change. Mm -hmm. To me, it seems more like they're at parallel positions. You know, they're both, like, the general managers of their various departments. But maybe with Loki being in charge, they're not sure where Heimdall's loyalty to Loki is. If his loyalty is to Loki rather than Thor, then he is in a position over them who are people who are considering treason and about to go rogue. Right. And Heimdall's we've seen certainly likes to pull that card of, like, you're all scared of me. Of course, I'm going to be angry. No, actually, I'm cool with what you're doing. Like, let's, you know, that's exactly what he did with the whole, like, you know, you want to pass, never, et cetera. So, right. right. Mm -hmm. Yeah, this this scene is great. Uh, Idris Elba's delivery there is just perfect. Just that clipped good as he walks away. Yeah. I, I love this portrayal of Heimdall. Like, the casting of that actor as Heimdall is just is perfect. I would not change a thing there. So much gravitas. I'm so glad to hear that because I, I'm a huge Idris Elba fan and I have been ever since uh, The Wire and shows like that. And then even more so with Suicide Squad that came out. And a number of us have said that it feels like uh, Elba's really wasted. So I'm I'm because his acting talents are so, so vast. So it's good to hear that, like for you all, at least, at least he is really getting this character very, very well, it sounds like, even if it's not as used as some of us would like. He's elevating it in a way. I mean, especially because it's such an abbreviated portrayal of his character. Like every word gives weight, which is good because there's not that many words for him. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And a lot of it is just, he really, he has that uh, sense of physical presence that just makes both the, the viewer of the movie and also all the characters in a scene kind of take notice. So yeah. Even if he's not, even if the character is underused, it's like they're just cramming a great deal of of charisma into every every minor molecule of Heimdall that we get. He's such an imposing actor anyway. Like, uh, you know, I've always loved just kind of like how he really 
carries on screen. Like he just, you get this sense of presence when you see Idris Elba there. And then you put him in this, this insane costume. And yeah, I mean, it's just like, this is, this is an imposing figure, no matter how you slice it. And yeah, I mean, even if we were kind of on the same level, as far as ranking, I would still, you know, want to make sure that, that, you know, I'm doing what I can to please him because yeah, it's just, there's, uh, there's a lot of power in the way that he carries that. One, so why does he keep doing this kind of fake out thing? Uh, like, as you said, he does so well here of like, are you really going to do all of this? Good. Uh, is it just, is it just he gets really bored watching everybody for a while? He has a little fun this way. Is it because of his, like, because of that gravitas that he wants to remind them uh, of what they are doing and how problematic it could be? Uh, is it because it's a way of testing people? What, what do you think is going on there from him? I think it's a test. I think, yeah, he wants to make sure that these four are committed, that they've thought this through, that they're not going to turn around halfway, that if this is going to happen, it's going to work. Because if it doesn't, it's going to be catastrophic for not only the Warriors 3 and Sif, but also for him and also for Asgard and for Thor. Mm -hmm. I almost feel like he's not consciously trying to fake them out. He just has no Fs to give. Like, he's like... I need to know this information. Are you in? Okay, we don't need to have a conversation about it. I'm going to go and you're going to go. Let's go. Right. The sense that I got as well is, especially given what we saw of him and Loki, he wants to know, he wants them to tell the truth. You know, it's one of those things where, to me, it kind of feels like if they had lied to him and tried to fool him, he might have been different. But he respects that he's like, no, you're, you're straight up. I asked the question. Sif said, yes, you're not Loki. You're not playing games. Okay. Mm hmm. You have my blood. They're not insulting him. Yeah. Right. It's, I mean, it is a very dangerous game that he's playing, though, here. And that's what I think is really interesting with his character. And I mean, the whole moment's played for comedy. I mean, it works really well. I like the way that it's all played. But if you're, if you step back and look at it, I mean, this is a person who is bound by honor to the king, cannot help. He has to do what Loki says. Loki is the new king. Yet he kind of, he, casually leaves his sword Hofund in the Bifrost ignition switch, basically, and walks out of the room. And so it's it is one of those gray areas. And I find it really interesting the way that he's playing that. Like I I'm 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 just walking out of the room. What you do while I'm away, I can't, you know, I I I'm not gonna know, but I'm just gonna be out here waiting. And so it's it's really interesting and and potentially dangerous the way that he's doing it. But I find it really interesting that he is a character who is willing to kind of do this. Well, and especially because Loki would know immediately, oh, Heimdall wasn't there. Come on, Heimdall can see everything. Like Heimdall yeah, right. knows he's just he's obeying the letter of the law. The spirit of the law, it's very clear, not even remotely, and it'll be clear to Loki as well. Exactly. Yeah. Because one thing I thought of when I saw this scene in terms of like, why would he do that when, you know, like Loki's not going to buy that for a second. But I know that in a lot of mythology, Norse mythology, definitely Celtic mythology, some of Greek mythology, especially like Northern European mythology, where a lot of the fey ideas come from. There's often this idea of like that you're kind of bound by these laws and not even in a like, I'll get in trouble, but like I am physically unable to break the letter of the law. But the spirit of it, well, you know, we can have fun. And, and, and that I, 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 I both throw that out. I'm, but I'm going to keep saying, tell us what you think of it from the comics. Um, you know, I, I'm curious if that aspect of the Heindel character comes up again in other places where he's like, his position is, it's not just that like he has orders to follow. He, he's kind of has this like power that both gives him power and binds him. And so he's unable to break the commands of it. But he can play with, you know, he, he can find the loopholes. Is that, is that something we see from him in other places? 
So I think this is where where our knowledge is kind of limited, because on our show, we talked about Walter Simonson's run, which is in a phenomenal run of Thor, but is also a minority of the Thor that has been published. Fair. And Heimdall is uh, certainly a character in that run, but he's not one of the most prominent ones. So for that, I couldn't say for sure. Um, Elizabeth, have you read uh, other Thor comics where that comes up? Well, what what came up from our run that we did, this Heimdall does seem a lot looser in the comics because he starts a, like a romance with the Enchantress, which oh. seems very surprising that a Law & Order man, well, first that he would have a romantic relationship, but also with someone like the Enchantress who basically lies like she breathes, who delights in it, and how they kind of have this complimentary like rom-com sort of relationship where he knows that she's trouble and she knows that he sees through him, but they still, they, they, they get each other. They, they, they enjoy each other. So that would be kind of similar to, he knows he shouldn't, but he can, you know, like not obeying the spirit of the law. I will say just the, the meta part of me now is very sad that Idris Elba wasn't in the Suicide Squad movie with the Enchantress from DC. What about you, Andy? What do you think of uh, what Heinel's doing here in terms of like the letter versus the spirit of the law? I mean, it's. It, I think that he knows what he's doing. I think that there's a there's a level where he has to commit to being. Uh, you know, following the king and doing, you know, what the king wants. And I mean, the last time we saw, uh, you know, him was with a conversation with Loki, who had just come back from Jotunheim and, and Loki very much kind of puts him in his place. And, and, you know, you're going to do what I say. And so here we are in this particular moment where Heimdall, you know, he, he knows things are bad and he wants to get them straightened out. He's willing to kind of, uh, you know, essentially commit treason in kind of a roundabout way. And I I feel like he does what he can to get them doing their part. And then he's just going to wait. And I I have a feeling, I mean, he can see everything. He probably already knows that Loki is kind of watching and is going to confront him at some point. And so here he is. I I think that he's just wanting to get things uh, fixed and is doing his own part in his own way. This is the most he can do while still being... Even if he doesn't care what Loki thinks of it, the oath that he has sworn, you know, maybe it's just his own belief in his honor. Maybe I say it's like it's an actual like limitation on him. Either way, though, that that's what matters to him. I have to wonder where that line is, because, I mean, to skip way ahead in the MCU, he is an active rebel in Thor Ragnarok. He is actively fighting back against somebody who kind of sort of has the right to the throne of Asgard. And so, like. What what is that trigger? What is oh I have to obey this awful monarch versus no I'm going to use my sword as a sword not just as a bridge key and, and that's clearly a theme the MCU likes I mean like in Black Panther the Dora Milaje faced the same kind of thing when uh, Killmonger becomes king you know so it's it's a and, and I think it's always and that's a fun story idea it is when you are like loyal to a position what happens in the position of that position doesn't actually earn your loyalty you know and how do you how do you, how do you make that work? It's interesting that you brought that up with with Hela because it does make me wonder now in context of kind of the world of Asgard after this particular moment had happened perhaps Odin changed some of the rules as far as like you know the way that uh, that Heimdall can react if things uh, if things happen you know it it does make me wonder if there is some some stretching of or a changing of rules based on on all of that. Mhm. To me, it makes me wonder if his primary allegiance is to Odin, because Odin very much didn't want Hela to be 
even alive or there. Yeah, right. So he's fall, he he is adhering to who he feels is the most legitimate authority. Yeah. I mean, certainly we know that he seems to be like not of the generation of Thor and Sif and the rest of them. So like my question then is, was Heindel around when when Odin and Hela were, you know, you know, conquering everything. And then when Odin realized that was wrong and like what role, because yeah, I think it could well be that like Heimdall saw that and he saw Odin turn away from that. And that's part of where he goes there. Well, and also just, I mean, uh, following up on that point, I mean, Odin is dead. And so perhaps at this point, he really, if if he was really just mainly serving Odin and Odin is dead, then maybe that's another reason why he's just like, you know, I don't have any loyalties anymore. I'm going to do what I need yeah. to do. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Yeah. Uh, and then, of course, so Fandral's line of complicated fellow, isn't he? Uh, it, it's comedic, but I guess it also kind of gets to this idea. Like, they seem much more straightforward and willing to break. They don't seem like they have any of these kind of compunctions, you know? And I I like that kind of like, okay, like, I think, he, you, you know, you can see their confusion of like, I think he's supporting us. I'm not really sure what's going on here. <laughs> mm-hmm. Well, especially the Warriors 3 and Sif as portrayed in the movie. I mean, these are characters who we've come back to this multiple times. They're very straightforward and very simple. There is not any complexity to them. So I can see them being a little confused by, wait a minute, this guy can have more than one motivation at a time? How can this be? (laughs) That's a fair thing to do. Nuance? What's that? We don't allow that here. (laughs) But also, I would believe that in the past, they mostly viewed Heimdall as a convenience and not as a person. Mm -hmm. You know, he did what they wanted them to do. So now they're like, oh, oh, we're learning things. All Right. right. And that's really kind of the theme of this movie in general and and kind of all the Thor movies. We have this ancient, largely unchanging society that's been that's been the same since very early on, certainly since, you know, the part of history that was involved, Hela was erased. And it's once Midgard starts getting involved, it's once Asgard enters like the MCU proper that change starts coming in, that characters start learning and growing and evolving and dying. That's very true. Yeah, yeah. And so the last thing we have for this minute is the, you know, he walks away and the Bifrost kind of kicks in. Did he set it on a timer, which makes it even more of like, how much is he helping them? Is it just that the Bifrost, like he left the keys in the car and the Bifrost knows that they want to go? What what do you think is happening in that moment? And what's, what's Heimdall's agency there? I think he absolutely said it to go and was just like, all right, as soon as they said yes, and he said, okay, good. I think there is some part of him that was like, Set the timer. I'm out. That's yep. the other reason why he's like, I'm not going with you, but uh, see ya. <laughs> or maybe good was just the trigger word. Maybe it was like a, an Apple Home or Siri kind of deal where uh, the sword is just listening and just realizes, oh, okay, that's the word that means I execute this procedure and go. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I like I like that interpretation as well. Just, you know, a lot, a lot of smart home technology in Asgard. <laughs> I'm glad you didn't mention the one that begins with G, because then mine would have heard you. Yeah. <laughs> Had some instances of that. Well, uh, we'll talk more about smart home technology in Asgard uh, tomorrow. But uh, for both of you, uh, as I understand this podcast you talked about, about the the Thor run was a couple years ago. You clearly have some nice podcast equipment. I'm guessing you didn't just dig it out of a closet after five years. Uh, What other kind of podcasting have you been doing or or other kind of content creation these last couple of years? Well, I'm strictly – what am I? What do you call that uh, – uh, I'm a Ronin, you know, I have no, I have no master. I occasionally get to guest on fine podcasts such as, as this. I'm a, there's a, a podcast called panel on panels. It's at don't adjust your ninja.com. And I am their official 
correspondent. And uh, so anything related to Loki or if there's just something, I get to do Hawkeye uh, or action movies. So I get to occasionally pop up and, and, and hang out with cool people like you guys. Cool. Well, I happen to know a podcast that's doing episodes about Hawkeye. I would love to have you on. So <laughs> <laughs> we, we will definitely uh, be, in, be in touch. What about for yourself, Miles? <laughs> Uh, so for a number of years now, I guess since about 2014, I've been doing a podcast with Jay Edidin called Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men. That's X-Plane, because any X-Men podcast has to have some kind of X-Pun in the title. It's a legal <laughs> requirement. And we've been going through, it's kind of like this show right here in that we go through X-Men chronologically, but a few issues at a time instead of a minute at a time. And so we've covered uh, from 1963 to 1996. We're toward the end of the Onslaught event right now. And we talk about continuity, but also social context, what was going on editorially in pop culture and regular culture at the time. So we're, we aim to be a one-stop shop for, uh, for X-Men continuity and analysis. Awesome. Well, congratulations. You have also just volunteered to be on an episode as the Is Magneto a Villain uh, or a Antihero is a constant topic we get to from an ethical standpoint. So, uh, well, that's awesome, though. For, for everyone fans, definitely check the check out what both y'all are doing. It sounds like some great content. Uh, thank you both for being a part of this. Uh, Andy, thank you so much for all you do. And to our fans, you make this possible. Thank you so much and have a great day. Until next time, true believers. Marvel Movie Minute is a production of True Story FM, engineering by Andy Nelson. This season's music is One Last Ride by Martin Puringer. Find the show at truestory.fm, and if your podcast app allows ratings and reviews, consider doing that for this show. Music